Hi, it's Erica Kohlberg. And before we dive into today's podcast episode, I have an exciting announcement that can help you save an extra $1,000 without having to penny pinch or change your lifestyle. On Monday, I'm running my free five-day savings challenge, where you'll discover simple and creative ways that you can save extra money every month. And whatever you want to do with that extra money is up to you. I'll just show you how to save it. The challenge is totally free to join. All you need to do is go to erica.com slash go. Erica is with a K and you can secure your spot. By the way, these strategies that you're going to discover can help you easily save money, whether you're a budgeting novice or a finance expert, and they're going to get better and better throughout the week. But I have to tell you, I'm so excited about this and don't want you to miss out. In November of last year, we ran a savings challenge and had over 200,000 people sign up. And on average, people saved $1,005 that month through what they learned in the challenge. That means our challengers collectively saved over $200 million. So trust me when I say you don't want to miss out on this one. And the deadline to sign up to be part of this free challenge is Sunday, 11.59 p.m. Eastern Time. So make sure you secure your spot and get free access today. Again, that's erica.com slash go, E-R-I-K-A dot com slash go. See you inside. As you know, on Erica Taught Me, most of our episodes are family friendly, but we did want to let you know that this one contains adult language. So please take note of that warning. And with that, let's get started. Happiness is overrated. Money's not going to solve your problems. Relationships are hard, so get good at them. Mark Manson is a New York Times bestselling author, blogger, and entrepreneur. Mark is a three-time number one New York Times bestselling author of The Subtle Art of Not Giving a f***. Sold over 10 million copies and has been a huge success worldwide. What is your belief when it comes to the connection between money and happiness? I think money is often a... I'm Erica Kohlberg, and you're listening to the Erica Taught Me podcast. You guys know that I love investing because you know that if your money is just sitting in a bank account, you're losing out to inflation every single year. That's why you invest it so that it grows for you without you having to put in any extra work. I've been using an investing app called Webull for almost four years, and I had them do something really special for my listeners. By using my link to sign up today, you can get between six to 12 fractional shares for free. All you need to do is open an account and deposit any amount, even a dollar, to claim your free shares. So just by depositing a dollar, you'll get between 6 to 12 free fractional shares. And if you're wondering what to actually invest in, we talk all about investing in episode 28, so go ahead and listen to that episode. To claim your free shares through my special link, just go to ericataughtme.com invest or click the link in the show notes. And it's Erica with a K. Again, that's ericataughtme.com slash invest. So you've talked about with some things in your life, realizing that you're in love with the result, Mm -hmm. but not the process. Can you take us through what that means? The most common example from my life that I talk about, I originally went to music school. You know, all through my teenage years, I was very serious and dedicated about music. I practiced all the time and wanted to be a professional. And, uh, and what music school taught me was that there's, you know, it's easy to want the reward. It's not easy to want the cost. And most 
pretty much everybody wants the reward of something. Very few people want the cost. And in the case of music, it was I wanted the reward of, I guess, the attention, the validation, being on stage, people cheering, you know, the whole rock star dream. But I didn't want to put in the hours. I didn't want to practice scales. I didn't want to learn about gear. I didn't want to study harmony or music theory. All those things felt very difficult and unfun to me. And so for I ended up dropping out of music school. And for a long time, I, I kind of had this bitterness of like, you know, damn you, music school, ruining my dream. But uh, when, you know, when, when I got older and a little bit more mature, I realized, you know, I, I actually didn't want to be a musician. I thought I wanted to be a musician. I thought I wanted to be on stage and people cheering and everything. But I didn't want the process that was required to achieve that, right? Whereas with writing, it's kind of the opposite. Like I, I enjoy the cost. I enjoy sitting by myself in a room quietly, like rewriting a paragraph over and over and over again. Like that feels very natural to me. And there's something exciting about that challenge to me in a way that there was never any excitement with the challenge of practicing scales or runs or anything. One thing that I always kind of implore to people is that it's, it's easy to want the reward, to like the reward. It's hard to like the struggle. And I think when most people ask themselves, like, what do I want to do with my life or what am I passionate about? They think about the rewards, they don't think about the struggle. Like, you should be asking yourself, what is the struggle that I like? What is the struggle that I'm passionate about? What is the challenge that excites me rather than drains me? Do you think that the desire to get that reward can ever be strong enough to overpower the fact that you may not enjoy the struggle? Or do you think that if we want to reach those rewards, we always have to enjoy the struggle part of it too? So the desire for the reward, you can overpower the struggle in the short run. So if you've got a goal next week or next month, maybe if, you, if you're a person with like a lot of willpower, maybe next month, maybe two months. But if we're talking two, three, four, five, ten years, no. Like you're if you don't like the struggle, you're going to give up at some point. Okay, so as, as an example, I really want to become more healthy and work mm-hmm. out, but I hate working out. I've yeah. At a certain point in my life, I enjoyed it, but now I've tried a few times and I just really don't like it. What do I do? And this is a great example because I think this is one that so many people relate to. The best advice I ever got around health was from a random friend who's like super fit when I was in, living in Boston. And he said, make it fun. Like find a way to make it fun, whether that is joining a class. You know, the thing about exercise is like the just the fact that you do it is like 80% of the benefit. Like exactly what you do is less important. So it's like find the class, whether it's yoga or Pilates or CrossFit or biking or surfing or running or like whatever it is. Like find the thing that's fun. Playing pickleball with your your friends. Like find something that's fun and then leverage the fun to get yourself to do it. And the funny thing is, is too, like, let's say, let's say pickleball, right? Let's say, you know, this is like apparently a trend, I guess. Um, (laughs) I've never played, but it's, it's a thing now. So like, let's say you've discovered you love pickleball and you're playing it a few times a week and it's fun and it's good exercise or whatever. Once you get really into the pickleball, you'll start realizing you're like, well, damn, I want to be better at pickleball. So how do I get better at pickleball? Well, maybe if I get up and run like once a week, that'll make me a lot better at pickleball because then I won't be tired when everybody else is tired. And so then that, like you can kind of piggyback off the fun thing and start adding the things that used to not be fun. Do you think that applies for everything? So for example, instead of saying, I want to become an author, say I enjoy writing or I want to become a lawyer, I enjoy studying the law or I want to become a TikToker, I enjoy creating video content. Sure. I think any, again, anything long-term, 
right? Like if we're talking about doing your taxes, like nothing's going to make that fun. So <laughs> you just suck it up, you know, block out an afternoon and you do it. But but yeah, all the things you mentioned are long-term not only are they long-term goals, but they're like they're very they're identity level things, right? So it's like you don't ever like you don't stop being a writer. Like once you've written books and blogged and written hundreds of articles, like you're a writer for the rest of your life. You know, if once you pass the bar, you're a lawyer for the rest of your life. So I think anything like that, it's it's if you want to continue doing it over the long term, you have to find the part of the process or the struggle that you can make enjoyable for yourself and rely on that. And and this is a drum that I bang on quite a bit. Like there's so much advice out there about willpower and you know, habits and discipline and like wake up early and, you know, set up your desk this way and here's how to do your calendar. And like that stuff's great. But I think what gets neglected is the emotional side of productivity, which is that if you're feeling like crap, if you're sad or depressed or anxious, like no tactic is going to solve that or overcome that. Like you have to get yourself emotionally to a good place where you're excited and interested about what you're pursuing. Mm. Otherwise, nothing else is going to move the needle for more than a few days or a few weeks. So let's say that someone is in a job that they really aren't enjoying. Do you think the issue is the job? They need to change the job or their mentality and their emotions around the job? Like what would be your advice if a friend comes to you and says, I really hate my job? So it could be either or both. I think the, the easiest place to start is with your mentality or your approach to it. What I find a lot is that People who are very unhappy with their job, if you really dig into it, it it turns out that they're actually really unhappy with like a specific role in their job or a specific person in their job, maybe a boss that they have that, you know, they like their job until this new new guy took over and now they hate it. And so I think identifying specifically like what it is that you don't like, and it might just be the entire job, like, and that's fine too, but like at least ask yourself the questions of like, if I had a better boss, would I like my job? If I didn't have to do, you know, the one thing I hate doing and I could just do all the other things, would I like my job? I do think there are some like mental reframes that you can do. I think a lot of people approach work with a very negative attitude, a very transactional attitude, which is not approaching anything in life transactionally is going to kill the joy of it, mm. period. That's true for relationships, that's true for jobs, that's true for health, that's true for anything. So, you know, be wary of like the attitude that you're bringing to it. But with all that said, yeah, sometimes, you know, you thought you wanted to be a doctor, you become a doctor and you're like, wow, I fucking hate being a doctor. <laughs> like, <laughs> I want to go do something else. You know, it, it happens, it's a very common thing and and it, and it happens in all walks of life. So, you know. Yeah. Maybe you can help explain this to me because I think as we're thinking about this process and result, what I do in terms of the social media, making videos online to help people, I enjoy the result a lot. I enjoy feeling like I'm impacting people. Yeah. But if I'm being absolutely honest, like filming videos, talking to myself in my room, I don't really enjoy <laughs> that process. Yeah. So is that a sign that I'm doing the wrong thing or is it okay to enjoy like the... I just, I live for the comments of people saying, oh my gosh, this really helped me or I yeah. applied this or I sent this to my mom. Like, But the filming itself, I could care less about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, so you love part of it and then there's part that you don't. And I think, you know, in your case, it's, and by the way, I relate, like I enjoy, there are a lot of processes within, you know, 
I guess, our field of being like online creators that I love. And then there's parts that I don't. And setting up video and all the cameras and all this, like that's a huge part of it. And so unloading that off to somebody else who does enjoy it is like the first and most obvious thing. But yeah, I mean, you know, I wrote this article a number of years ago called called Screw Finding Your Passion. But in it, I, I had a thing that like people loved and they like quoted and reposted a bunch, which was I said, even in even in your dream job, you're gonna be annoyed 20% of the time. Mm. Like there's no such thing as a job or or anything, a relationship, an endeavor where you are happy all the time. Like your dream relationship, you're still sick of the person. 10% of the time. Like it's just that's just life. Like there's <laughs> there's like a, there's no escaping it completely. You know, so the I think the the goal here is not capital H happiness. It's more like how do we get that ratio to a really good place where mm. it's, you know, 4 out of 5 days I'm really enjoying what I'm doing or 3 out of 4 workouts I'm like getting to the end feeling good, not having to like, you know, torture myself. Yeah. As you were saying, the for the dream relationship, you still might dislike the person 10, 20% of the time. My husband's in the background yeah. nodding. And I'm like, what the heck? You're like, what? <laughs> You're not supposed to agree with that. <laughs> what do you think has caused kind of these unrealistic expectations that we grow up with of this dream job or the dream relationship where we expect it to be 100% perfect? Therefore, when it is only 80 or 90% perfect, we feel a bit of disappointment or maybe that it isn't the right fit. Yeah. I think it's a combination of two things. I think one is just one is easy to market, you know, this is the solution to happiness. This is your dream job. This is how to be healthy and sexy and happy. You know, like that that transmits very well. The the reality which we're discussing of like look, no matter what you do, you're going to be annoyed 20% of the time. That's not like a super marketable <laughs> slogan. <laughs> like you're not going to see like a, you know, a soda ad with that as its slogan anytime soon. Like, you know, 80% satisfaction. <laughs> Just do it 80% of the time. <laughs> yeah, do it 80% of the time. <laughs> so, I, you know, I think a lot of it gets kind of echoed around pop culture in that way. You know, I think the the self-help personal development industry is guilty of that as well. Like, Telling people that you can get them to be satisfied with their lives 80% of the time, like that doesn't fill a seminar room mm-hmm. as well as it, you know, promising them that you can make them happy all the time. So there, you know, there's definitely like a marketing pop culture component of it. I also just think like some of it is being young and naive. You know, like I think part of this, what I notice is the younger the person, the more they kind of just blindly subscribe to this assumption that like there's a dream job out there that they're going to be happy with all the time or there's a soulmate out there who's going they're going to be happy with all the time what i notice is that once you start talking to people in their 40s and 50s and especially 60s and 70s they're very aware of this like they're very aware like no you nobody puts up a perfect score like life is always just going to suck sometimes. <laughs> and that's just part of the deal. <laughs> do you think you feel that way? Like, is there a little bit of pessimism in you? Do you think you'll ever reach a point where you say, you guys will be happy 100% of the time? No, because it's dishonest. <laughs> <laughs> it, no, it really is. Like, I I don't think, and I, I mentioned this briefly in, in Subtle Art, but like, I don't think being happy all the time is the most adaptable 
strategy in life, right? Like it's like if you think from an evolutionary perspective, if you have two creatures, one is happy all the time and is always optimistic and is like thinks everything is great and everything's going to go great, and then you have another creature who's a little bit paranoid, a little bit freaked out. Like every rustle in the bush, they're like, "Oh my god, that's a tiger!" You know, which one's going to survive longer? It's the it's the slightly paranoid one. It's the slightly anxious one. It's the one that's constantly dissatisfied. The one that's like, "Oh, this food's not enough. I need more." Like that's the one that's going to survive and procreate. So I think it's in that sense, there's a moderate amount of dissatisfaction with our lives is actually, from an evolutionary standpoint, highly adaptable. Mm. So I'm very, I believe very very strongly that this is just an inherent part of our nature is to be mildly dissatisfied most of the time like that's and if you look at like research on happiness and well-being and stuff like that's what you get back is like nobody's a 10 everybody's a seven or eight most well not everybody most people are seven or eight most of the time and people who go up to 10 or people who go down the four or five within a couple months they come back to a seven or eight i feel like in just our short conversation thus far i understand why you've had so much success because you're making me feel validated in so many ways. <laughs> like I am a complainer sometimes and I'm yeah. realizing, oh, that's a good thing I'm complaining instead of like happy all the time. <laughs> we we hiked Runyon Canyon today. Oh, yeah. And I was miserable. Like I was complaining about every three minutes. I was so upset because I think we went up the wrong path and it was yeah. too steep and I was just so upset. And then there was this girl who was like jogging next to us and being like, life is amazing. Good morning, guys. <laughs> And I was thinking, I wish I could be like her instead of complaining. But yeah. now I feel like you're giving me permission to complain. Yeah. I mean, you. I don't know if I give you permission to complain. <laughs> I give you permission to be unhappy. Like, I like that, that. That is fine. <laughs> I think the complaining probably doesn't help anything. <laughs> if you're listening, let me guess. You have a passcode on your phone. And let me take another wild guess and say that you have a password on your computer. But why are so many of us okay just being completely unprotected online? We have no idea who has all our personal information online and whether it's the good guys or the bad guys who might be selling your information or worse. We're talking spammers, telemarketers, robocallers, people who want to know more about you and even where you live. My sister had her data leaked online and because of that, her identity was stolen and it was a nightmare to deal with. We had to lock down all her credit cards just for starters. That's why I'm excited to tell you about Aura, a sponsor of this episode. Aura can identify data brokers exposing your info and submit opt-out requests on your behalf. When I discovered it, I knew I had to try it out just to see if my information had been leaked online, which they let me see instantly after I signed up. And get this, for my audience, they're offering a free 14-day trial so you can see if your personal information has been leaked online. To find out now, go to ericataughtme.com slash Aura to claim your free 14-day trial. Erica with a K and Aura is spelled A-U-R-A. Again, that's ericataughtme.com slash Aura, and I'll also leave the link in the show notes. I recently went on an anniversary getaway with the husband and it was beautiful. Here's everything I got for free. We got free business class tickets for an international flight, which meant, yep, you guessed it. I got free access to the lounge where we could kick things off with a glass of champagne. Then we got a free stay at a five-star hotel where we could relax and go to the beach. 
Okay, so now I'm sure you're wondering how I got it for free, and you know I don't gatekeep, so here's the insider knowledge you need to know. I did it by signing up for a free Built credit card. Built is a credit card that lets you earn points just for paying your rent, and there's no extra fee. And when I say free, I mean free. There's no annual fee for the credit card, and they don't charge a transaction fee for paying your rent with the card. You'll also earn two times the points on travel and three times the points on dining. Once you get your points, you can transfer them to travel partners like airlines and hotels to then get the free business class flights or five-star hotels like I did. To sign up for this card, go to ericataughtme.com slash built. Erica is with a K and built is B-I-L-T. Or to make it easier, go to the link in the show notes. Again, that's ericataughtme.com slash built. Okay, so this pursuit of happiness, Mm -hmm. what do you think people are getting wrong when it comes to that? I think people are way too focused on the feeling of happiness. I think they should be more focused on spending their time well, doing things that are worth doing. You know, there's a funny thing with like human emotions, which is that, and we've all experienced this, is like, let's say you're you're angry and you don't want to be angry anymore. It just makes you more angry because you just get pissed off that you're pissed off, you know, or if you're anxious and you don't want to be anxious, you just get anxious that you're being so anxious. The funny thing with happiness is that if you stop and ask yourself constantly, am I happy? How can I be happy? I want to be happy. You make yourself less happy. And so it's one of the few things in life that putting more effort towards it or more focused attention towards it decreases the result. You know, it's one of the few things in life that you actually, by just simply letting it go and not trying to control it, it happens more often. So I think a lot of people get very caught up in how they feel, which is fine. You know, emotions are important, but like you're going to feel things all the time. Like you're going to always be anxious or angry or happy or sad or whatever. Like life is always going to put you in those situations. What matters is what you do. It's how you react to the emotion. And if you develop the capacity to consistently perform good actions despite whatever emotion you're feeling, then more often than not, you're, you're going to feel good about yourself. Interesting. What about the people who swear by these gratitude journals where you write down the happy points of each day? Are they focusing too much on happiness or why does that work for them? I think gratitude journals are useful or gratitude in general is useful because it is forcing you to take a certain perspective of just being appreciative of the things that you have. You know, I would describe gratitude as slightly different than happiness. That the two often coincide or happen together, but it's. I think gratitude is more like a, an antidote to misery than it is a cause of happiness, right? Like it's generally when you feel miserable, you're like so focused on the one thing that you don't like that you're forgetting the the hundred things that are good. And so the the practice of gratitude forces you to like take your attention off that one thing you don't like and realize like, oh, my life's pretty sweet. Like maybe I should chill. (laughs) (laughs) How do you see mental health being connected to happiness? Are people who have mental health issues, I have anxiety, I have depression Mm. in the past, like are we more inclined to be less happy? I don't know if that's the right way to ask it, but. (laughs) Yeah, I, you know, I generally think that happiness tends to get overrated. You know, I think happiness is a natural side effect 
of getting the other things right, of getting kind of the mental health stuff right. And mental health is mostly, it's around being able to respond well to situations, being able to respond to adversity well, being resilient, having a decent amount of self-esteem, having respect and boundaries in your relationships, having like people around you who care about you. You know, most of those things kind of regulate your mental health and happiness kind of just, if you get those things right, happiness just, just starts happening as a side effect. I think people get too caught up on the trying to be happy and they like neglect, you know, a lot of the, the nitty gritty stuff that actually needs most of the focus. So what I'm getting is don't focus so much on the happiness, focus on things that you enjoy, yeah. make you happy. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really. I tweeted this out recently. I said like the the majority of our well being really boils down to three questions: What are we spending our time working on? Who are we spending our time with? And how much are we taking care of our bodies? And it's like if you can answer all three of those things somewhat decently, you're probably a happy person most of the time. Like all these other questions, these kind of philosophical questions or productivity questions, you know, it's they're they're like window dressing. Like they're, you know, they're not the real thing. Get a few good relationships in your life, work on a project that you care about and feels important to you, and don't treat your body like shit. And it's like that's the 20 that drives 80% of happiness. For that second question, the who are we spending time with? I guess my question for you is who should we be spending time with? How do we find those good relationships and understand whether they are in fact good relationships? <laughs> oh man, that's like a whole podcast <laughs> in and of itself. <laughs> I guess the quick answer to that is we all need people who A, we deeply care about and who deep, deeply care about us. And then B, and this is usually the harder thing to get, is who we respect and admire and who respect and admire us. You know, the second part the way I define an unhealthy relationship is people who view relationships as power struggles, who see it as who are constantly trying to prove themselves as being worthy to the other person. And this happens, you know, in parent-child relationships, it happens in romantic relationships, it happens in friendships. In all cases, it is that is what is toxic, is when one or both people are constantly trying to manipulate or control the affection or validation that they're getting from the other person. It's very similar to the happiness thing. It's like a, a healthy relationship is when both people are able to let go and be like, I trust you to have my interests in, in mind and treat me well. I'm not going to try to force you or control you into treating me well. And it's hard to find that. You know, it's, it's like there's a whole learning curve of having and maintaining healthy relationships. I mean, for those People, there are a certain percentage of people are very fortunate in that they grow up with parents who have very healthy and functional relationships and are good at relationships. And those people probably grow up knowing how to have healthy and functional relationships. But for the rest of us, we have to figure it out the fucking hard way, <laughs> which is, you know, dumpster fire after dumpster fire of romantic relationships, usually and a bunch of toxic friendships. So it's it's a long process for a lot of people, but you know, ultimately, in the long run, again, if you look at the research around happiness, well-being, life satisfaction, quantity and caliber of your close relationships has is ultimately like the largest factor on all of those things. Besides seeing and identifying that there is some kind of power dynamic, 
Are there any other red flags that people should be looking for in determining whether they're in a good relationship or a bad relationship? Another kind of heuristic to look at is what I call conditionality. So people who, if you're in a relationship, and again, it could be family, romantic, or friendship, who their affection or approval is conditional on you doing something or achieving something or saying the right thing or whatever, yeah, that's, it's not a healthy relationship. It's, it's fundamentally, because you're not free to be yourself, and if you're doing that to them, they're not free to be themselves. And so, and, and then as soon as manipulation in, enters into the picture, now you've got a power struggle and it's, it, everything goes downhill. So healthy relationships are unconditional. It's you be who you are. You don't have to do anything to prove your worth to me. I appreciate you. I care about you. I love you. I like spending time with you regardless of you know whether you're happy or sad or got into the right school or make enough money or drive the right car or whatever. So that's another like very simple yes no way to look at it. I'm thinking of my own childhood right now and thinking obviously my mom loved me unconditionally but some things did seem conditional like yeah. it was when I got good grades she was very proud of me when I did not she was not happy about it and Yeah. Is that bad or is that okay parenting because obviously she challenged me to get to yeah. a place of It's hard with kids because obviously you need to set conditions, make sure that they grow up and not, you know, <laughs> just like kill, like kill themselves doing something stupid. So you have to set boundaries and limits around children and, and create incentives for them. There is a fine line. I would say the healthy way to do it is to, you put conditions, you can set up conditions within a relationship. The love is unconditional. Mm. It's, this is one thing, you know, I get a lot of emails asking me about this and I always say like in the context of romantic relationships, the romantic relationship is always conditional. Like there are things my wife can do that like I will divorce her, <laughs> you know, like it's that's just a fact and it should be that way. But my love and affection for her is unconditional. Like she doesn't need to earn my love. She doesn't need to prove something to get my approval. And I think the same is true with like a parent-child relationship. Like it's your parent that the love needs to be unconditional, but there needs to be conditions around approval, activity, behavior. You know, so it's like if you get bad grades, then yeah, you know what? You don't go to Disneyland. Like that's how it works. Mm. I still love you, but go clean your room. You know, like <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's the conditionality is around the affection in the uh, in the love that's toxic. How do you establish those conditions that you have in your friendships or your romantic relationships or with your parents or with your children? And then what do you do or do you establish the punishment at the same time to the consequence for not following those conditions? So yeah, so this is where we get in the boundaries, right? So it's if something is, and this is actually a very healthy thing. So let's say there's something that my wife does that bugs me or triggers me or makes me upset or whatever. And Obviously, like, I don't want to be upset. She doesn't want me to be upset. And so what you do is you kind of explicitly state, hey, when you do that behavior, like, it's, it's very upsetting to me. Like, it, you know, triggers some old baggage of mine and, you know, I have trouble handling it. Do you mind, like, not doing that? Because when you do that, I don't want to be around you or I don't want to, it makes me not want to spend time with you. And so you kind of set this, like, hey, this is, like, we're going to create kind of a, an if-then statement within our relationship 
of, you know, this thing drives me crazy. Please don't do it. And if you do it, then like this is how I'm going to react. It's actually very healthy because it sets expectations for both people. Now my wife knows, oh, that's the thing that pisses Mark off. And then if she does it, she knows how I'm going to respond. She knows how I'm going to behave. She, she doesn't, there's no like ambiguity or uncertainty around it. You know, a, a much more extreme example or yeah, I guess intense example is like just around monogamy, right? It's like, if you cheat on me, I'm going to fucking leave you, right? Like that's a very clear if then boundary. I'm still going to love you. I'm still going to care about you. Like that's unconditional, but we've set these boundaries. We've set these expectations. And if you don't live up to them, then like we don't have a relationship anymore. And so it's, I think a lot of people, generally people who are enmeshed in a lot of unhealthy relationships, they struggle to set boundaries because they don't like displeasing or potentially displeasing their partner. Like they don't want to create unnecessary drama or you know, start a fight over something. But what they don't realize is, is that by setting that boundary, even though it's a very uncomfortable conversation and maybe you might fight a little bit about it, once that expectation is set, you're preventing like dozens of future fights. So it's like, it's the one fight that prevents the next 20 fights. And I think the other thing too is that once both people get good at that, you actually, both people start welcoming it. So it's like, it's a very welcome thing. Like if my wife tells me like, hey, can I ask you to do this thing because, or like stop doing this thing because it really pisses me off and it makes me like, you know, it ruins my afternoon. I'm like, okay, cool. <laughs> like, got it. You know, it's not a problem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you were talking earlier about how when people are fortunate enough to grow up seeing a good relationship modeled, yeah. then they're more likely to be able to spot or get into these good relationships. How do people who didn't necessarily have a childhood where they were seeing a lot of good relationships model, how can they get over it to then find their own good relationships? I think a lot of it, it's a combination of two things. I think one is look for people in your life who seem to have healthy relationships and, and just be around them you know, be friends with them, but also watch them with their partners, talk to them. And then, the, you know, the second way is to read books. You know, there's, there's a lot of great resources online for these topics now. There's a lot of great courses and seminars and teachers and therapists on these topics. The other thing I will point out too is that typically pop culture is depicted horribly, horribly unhealthy relationship dynamics. Like every rom-com ever is exactly what you should not do and what you should not be attracted to. <laughs> like, it's just completely, it's funny because like once I like studied all this stuff for a long time and, and learned all this stuff, uh, I can't watch rom-coms anymore. I'm like, my God, he is gaslighting the shit out of her. And like, she's violating his boundaries here and here and here. And wow, he is so codependent. Like, it's just, the whole movie's ruined for me. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about gaslighting, because I use that term, but someone didn't know what it was. Yeah, it's um, it's a little bit abstract, but it's basically like it's when you behave in such a way that triggers somebody else emotionally, and then you act like they're crazy for getting emotional about it, right? So it's like, let's say I just took your car after this interview and like took it for a joyride <laughs> and then brought it back, and you were like, what the fuck, Mark? What are you doing? And I'm like, well, what's the deal? Like, thought we were buds. Why can't I take, wow, you're like 
totally overreacting. What's your problem, Erica? <laughs> Jeez, like, okay, relax. Like, it's just a car. My God, you know, where it's like, you're totally in the right. Like, I just did something very inappropriate, completely like invaded your life and did something without your permission. But I'm acting like you're the weird one for being mad about it. Yeah. And that's what gaslighting is. It's like violating a boundary and then acting like you're a weirdo for being upset about the, the violated boundary. It's so common too. Like in looking back at my past relationships, there's so many times I was gaslighted before I knew what that term was. Yeah. And now that I know that what the term is, it's like, that was gaslighting. <laughs> <laughs> what about for communication? I am also very blunt. However, my husband prefers a softer way of, of communication. So when I say things, they sometimes come off too aggressively. Sure. Just because I'm the lawyer in me is just like, I, I want to say <laughs> things as they are and I don't like process of having to think about words to sugarcoat certain things. Mm -hmm. Does that mean I should improve or he should be better at taking my bluntness? <laughs> <laughs> I am sitting between both of you, right? I need to be careful what I say here. Uh, I think people have communication styles and I think it's useful to understand those styles. It's almost like a, a form of translation. So in my opinion, my wife, so my wife and I were both very blunt, but like She's Brazilian, so she's very fiery and emotional. And so she'll, like, on a, a, an emotional odometer, she'll go from zero to 10 in like two seconds. And for many years, I was like, calm the fuck down. <laughs> <laughs> but eventually, I don't know, it's you, you kind of learn to adapt. Like, I learned, I'm like, okay, to me, that's a 10, but to her, that's a five, you know? And, and so now I need to interpret it as a five, mm. right? And I think I think every couple, especially once you've been together for a long time, you start learning those aspects of each other, you know. And so he's probably like, "Okay, that was pretty blunt, but like, you know, that's just how she is. It doesn't mean she's being mean or you know abrasive or whatever." And you just learn and understand after a while. It's like, okay, it takes him a little bit longer to like land on the thing, but he gets there. So just give him the space to get there. A lot of that is just simply learning each other's personalities and communication styles. I'm not a huge fan of the idea that there is a right style of communication or a wrong style of communication. Like we're all very individual and we have like very individual emotions and we process our emotions individually and then we express them individually. I think there are universal principles of communication of say honesty, respect, trust. But ultimately it's we all have our own ways of letting things out. How did he become so wise? I feel like every question I've thrown at you, we've gone through like a, a whole spectrum of things so far. Lots you have podcasts. Yeah, you have such a good answer to it. <laughs> because you you started as a relationship coach, is that right? I did, I did. And that, that happened completely on accident. I started blogging in 2007. I was 23, had just finished college, and I was blogging about my own dating life. And some of the crazy situations I got myself into. And I developed a readership. And then readers started asking me for dating and relationship advice. And I started giving it. And, and at a certain point, I was like, oh shit, I think I have a job. Like, <laughs> I should probably do some research and like know what I'm talking about. But it, it's, I've always been very fascinated with human psychology. I've always, you know, read a lot of philosophy and psychology, read a lot of self help when I was younger. So it, it's a subject, like this, the subject area was always a passion of mine. And even though I went to college for a bunch of other stuff, you know, 
it's that fun little hobby thing that I was doing that turned into the job. And that's how you knew it was the, that was the passion. I guess like I just kept following it, you know, like it, I kind of, you know, early on, I always thought I'm like, you know, I'll do this for a few years. Again, I was 23, 24, you know, I'll do this for a few years. I'll make some money on, you know, make some internet money, go travel, just have a good time. And a few years went by and it just kept growing and growing and growing. And I think it was by the time I was like 27 or 28, I was like, wait a second, I think I have a career. <laughs> and, and I need to actually sit down and kind of seriously ask myself, where am I going? Who am I going to be? What am I going to stand for? What are like my principles and my message? And so I started figuring that was like 2011, 2012. So that was when I started to kind of take it a lot more seriously and really figure out like, who, who am I going to be in this world? So at this point, I assume with 15, 16 million copies of your bestseller, The Subtle Art of Not Giving an F, sold, most people have read it and understand what the principles in there are. But if you were to summarize it for someone who has not read it, what is this about? Fundamentally, it's about, well, it's a lot about what we talked about in the first part of this interview. Ultimately, it's a book about values and priorities. It's a book basically telling people to focus less on their emotions and less on happiness and more on prioritizing what what is good and important and just doing good actions and understanding that if they do good actions consistently then the happiness and the success and stuff will like happen as a byproduct and i guess the 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 trick of it is that you know if i wrote a book about values nobody would buy it so i called it giving a fuck you know or not giving a fuck so you have to give a fuck about something it's just a question of what you're choosing to give a fuck about and like what is the prioritization of the fucks that you're giving when you word it that way i mean you see like it's just it works like people are suddenly open to it and like eat it up so i'm very fortunate that i kind of stumbled upon this like silly phrasing that gets actually a very important philosophical <laughs> concept across the people in a way that they can understand. What's the principle in there that the most number of people write you about and say, this changed my life because you told me this in the book? So one of the, one of the most popular parts of the book is what we opened up with, which is like finding the struggle that you enjoy. That's in there. The other one is I talk about responsibility about halfway through the book. And one of the things that I talk about is you know the the advice that you should take responsibility for everything in your life is it's a very common piece of advice but the most common resistance to that advice is like well bad things happen to good people what if i've been screwed over what if i've been you know some something tragic has happened that's that's not my fault why am i responsible for that and so in one of the chapters i kind of differentiate between fault and responsibility i think we we assume that fault and responsibility are the same thing. And I guess legally, they often are the same thing. But from a personal psychological point of view, you can be responsible for a lot of things that are not your fault. I think the example I use in the book is that if, if somebody leaves a newborn baby on your doorstep, that is not your fault, but is absolutely your responsibility to, to do something. Similarly, if you get hit by a car and end up in the hospital, it's not your fault but it is your responsibility to recover and take care of your health and listen to the doctor and do everything you can to get healthy again. So there are a lot of situations in life that we are still very responsible for, but we're, it's not our fault. Like We had nothing to do with how it happened. And so I, I think it, it opened a lot of people's eyes to like remove the fault component mm. from it, and it helped people 
I guess, sit, sit better with that, that piece of advice. You mentioned growing up that you were reading a lot of self-help books. What is the one piece of self-help advice that just drives you absolutely nuts and you <laughs> fundamentally disagree with? Okay, there's a tie for this one. I don't know how to choose between these two. The first one is kind of the traditional law of attraction, the secret, you know, manifestation, you know, just just visualize and believe something and it'll happen. It's that it's not that it's entirely wrong. Like there are I wrote a big article about this on my website years ago. It actually the article is called The Staggering Bullshit of the Secret, but it's basically so there's a thing called there's a thing in psychology called um confirmation bias, which is so like if we went down the Santa Monica Boulevard here and I don't know, hung out, walked a few blocks, and then I asked you what type of cars went by, you'd probably be like, I have no idea. I wasn't paying attention. But like let's pretend you want to buy a car. And you've been doing a lot of research on cars, you've been thinking about different cars, different companies. And then we go down the Santa Monica Boulevard and walk around for a while. And I ask you, what kind of cars drove by? You would probably remember and notice a bunch that went by because you've been thinking about cars, you want to buy a car. And so because you're, you've been researching cars and want to buy one, suddenly you start noticing all these cars around you that you never paid attention to before. And this is known as confirmation bias, we all do it, happens constantly. And essentially what the law of attraction is, it's just leveraging confirmation bias in our favor, right? So it's like, if you tell people, think about your goal all the time, you know, like let's say my goal is, I want to, I don't know, I want to be rich or whatever, then you will start noticing opportunities all over the place. It's not that those opportunities weren't there before, it's just you weren't noticing them because you hadn't been thinking about your goal. So in that sense, it works because you are simply like priming your brain to notice the opportunities that relate to your goal because you're thinking about your goal. There's nothing magical about the universe that's happening. There's nothing like cosmic or, you know, it's not quantum mechanics or whatever. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's a very common and well-documented perceptual bias that we all have. And when, when used effectively, the secret kind of trains you to use your confirmation bias in a way that helps you. The problem with it is that it comes with all this kind of like cosmic jargon and it goes further than simply like just think about your goal because it doesn't differentiate between think about your goal and think about who you want to be. So like let's say I decide I want to be seven feet tall and play in the NBA. I can think about that all day and night. I can even convince myself that it's real, that I am seven feet tall and I play in the NBA. That doesn't make me successful. That makes me fucking crazy. And I think this happens to a certain extent because it's people don't realize that there's a very important distinction between thinking and focusing on a, some external goal that you're pursuing and thinking and focusing on an identity you want to inhabit you're kind of playing with fire psychologically when you start asking yourself to like believe in things that don't exist because it might increase the the chance of something good happening. So yeah, I I like have a lot of problems with the law of attraction stuff and I've been very critical of it. I think there's like a nugget of good advice there and there's just like this outer shell of bullshit around it. Tied for first is the just stay positive advice. Like it's I get why people say it. I get why it became a thing. I think there's, again, there's a nugget of good advice there, which is you should always look for the positive in anything that happens to you. You know, So mom gets hit by a bus and dies. 
I'm sure you can find some sort of positive side effect there, maybe. But like, let's not kid ourselves. That's a horrible, tragic thing, and you should be sad. And it's completely normal and healthy to be sad. You know what's interesting, though? What you were saying about confirmation bias really resonated with me because one of my very first videos on YouTube, it was titled something like, How I'll Build $200,000 of Passive Income This Year. Yeah. And it wasn't, I think two things went right. And it wasn't that I manifested it. It was one, the confirmation bias of, of now I was actively looking for more opportunities yep. to make passive income, whereas I would not have seen them before. And I started researching more about passive income, which allowed me to learn more about it and yes. spot those opportunities. But then two, I think for me, the accountability was very important too. Yes. The fact that I had broadcast on YouTube that I was going to make this money, it made me feel accountable to actually trying to go make it. Which... And this is the thing, is that I think what most people experience as the law of attraction working is easily explainable by all these other things, right? So confirmation bias, you brought up another one, accountability, which when you look at if you want somebody to, to develop a new habit or break a bad habit, accountability is like one of the most effective things to get a person to change their behavior. Uh, and then there's another thing, which is goal setting, right? And it's the value of goal setting isn't so much that it motivates you, it's that you're setting like a finish line, right? If you just want to be like, I want to make a bunch of money, well, what does that mean? Is that 50 bucks? Is that 50,000 bucks? Like, who knows? And if, because you don't know, you don't know how to gauge your actions and like scale whatever you're doing. But when you decide, I want $200,000 in X amount of time, now you can start working your way back of like, okay, how much is that each month? Okay, how, like, how many views do I need to get? How many sponsors do I need to get? You know, yada yada yada, and it's and again, it's that's not the law of attraction. That's just like setting a goal and then like breaking that down into subtasks, making yourself accountable, and using confirmation bias to help you. It's it's I get why people like it. I get why people like it. It's just I've seen so many people. It doesn't work if you're not working, mm. right? Like, and I think that's not being communicated well. Like it, it's. The law of attraction requires a lot of activity <laughs> to be happening in the background. Like you can't just sit on your couch and be like, I'm gonna make a bunch of money. This is gonna be great. Like, <laughs> <laughs> as much as that would be lovely. Yeah. One of the things that I was thinking about, a lot of people that I talk to that have made a lot of money in their career will say the first hundred thousand dollars is most the most difficult. Sure. Then the first million dollars is the most difficult. And then it gets easier. And I think one of the things that just clicked as I was listening to you is it's the first $100,000 is the most difficult because you're starting to train yourself and develop that skill of how to look for opportunities to make money. And then it gets easier because you've kind of developed that skill. And I remember reading one of your articles that was saying that you should focus most on the skill and yeah. not so much on the result. Yeah, it, it's again... If you develop the skills, the result will happen as a byproduct, right? Like money just starts happening as a byproduct. It's also the reason the first 100K is the hardest. It's not just that you haven't developed the skill of looking for like finding opportunities. It's also just you haven't developed skills yet, right? Like it's you haven't gotten excellent at something. Like that's what gets you paid is becoming excellent or finding an opportunity, like a, a niche for yourself. And that requires a lot of time and effort and work um, to get there. And then once you've built that skill, you can just keep running it over and over and over again. Mm. And and that's why it gets easier. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why it gets easier, but I mean, like fundamentally, that's that's the main reason. Is like you've learned what works and you've learned how to find what works. Yeah. 
So a lot of my audience knows me for talking about money a lot. And so I wanted to ask if you have any strong beliefs on the connection between money and happiness, because obviously there's a lot of research out there. For years, the research was after $70,000, any more money doesn't increase your happiness. Which is wrong. I know. Well, and then I recently I saw that after it's actually, you guys, after $500,000, <laughs> but there's so many like conflicting reports. What is your belief when it comes to the connection between money and happiness? I feel like my dad put it the best. At least this is what I believe. He says money doesn't buy happiness, it buys away unhappiness, which is a very subtle distinction. Another way to think about it is that money doesn't necessarily make you happy. It buys you opportunities to be happy. So it, it gives you access to things. If you are the type of person who attitude and mentality just makes you a very miserable person, there's no amount of money that's going to fix that. But it's, you know, it, it helps. Absolutely. It, it is absolutely a huge thing. And I think the curve for most people, the significance of added money to their life, it's going to have a diminishing returns the more you get. And depending on the person and depending on their ambition or you know their goals for themselves, like most people are going to probably hop off that curve around low six figures. Like it's just once you have all your basic needs met and you're living well and you've like you're able to take cool trips and your kids are in a good school, I think most people find it hard like most people are going to find little added value to like pushing past that. But then there's like a small percentage of people who are just, you know, psychos and <laughs> just want as many zeros as possible. <laughs> the money happiness correlation stops around that low six figure mark in your opinion. I don't think it stops. I, it definitely levels off, right? Mm. So it's like the the gap, the difference between $1,000 a year and 10000 is massive. Difference between say 10 and 100 is also massive. Difference between 100 and a million, it's significant, but it's not like it's not going to change that. It's not nearly as drastic as from 10 to 100. And then from a million to 10 million, it's like I don't know what the difference is between those like it doesn't really matter. So I think it it does probably increase, but like it just levels off a lot. And I that leveling off probably happens around six figures. I imagine like the optimal amount of money to for happiness is probably low six figures somewhere. That would be my guess. Unless you just love working your ass off, which some people do. <laughs> for money, I know we talked a lot about how you shouldn't be thinking about the result, you should be thinking about the process. Is it okay to say, I want to become rich or I want to make a million dollars? Or should we figure out the process that we like to get there? I think it's totally fine to to say I want to be rich or I want to be a millionaire or whatever. You know, just to be clear, I'm not against being results oriented at all. I just think there needs to be a weighting or a prioritization towards process oriented goals versus, you know, it's it's results oriented goals are fun. Like it's fun to hit a number. It's fun to hit 100,000 subscribers. It's fun to hit a million dollars. Like that it's those are nice celebratory moments. And I think those moments are important. I just I don't think they're the point. The point is the process. Mm. The fun results-based moments are just like the nice little side effects that you get to celebrate now and then. So to answer your question, I don't think there's anything wrong with having a goal of like, I want to be a millionaire. I think there are wrong reasons to have that goal. And I think there 
I don't want to say wrong reasons. I want to say unhealthy reasons to have that goal. And there are healthy reasons to have that goal. I think examples of unhealthy reasons to have that goal is I want to be a millionaire because then people will like me or then they'll respect me or then you know my family will approve of me or I can show you know I can have power and dominate others or whatever. I think those are bad reasons to want to be a millionaire. Like that's probably not if those are your reasons then it's not really going to solve much for you. Mm-hmm. Good reasons to want to be a millionaire is I want to build something that impacts people enough to justify making a million dollars. I think it'd be fun to build something that earns a million dollars. I I would like to get good at a skill, so good at a skill that people are willing to pay me a million dollars. Like th- I think those are healthy reasons to want to be a millionaire. Why do you think money can cause so much conflict? I mean, it's very known that one of the biggest reasons for divorce is money. What is the reason that money can create that conflict? I think money is often a very easy proxy for us to project our self-worth issues, especially for people who who maybe grew up without much money. But it's like, let's be honest, there's, there's a weird tension because how much you get paid in a sense is in one sense, not a total sense, but in one sense, it is how much the world is valuing you. And as humans, we all have these open questions of like, am I a worthy person? Is my life meaningful? And do I have value to others? Like these are all difficult questions that we all wrestle with. And so when the world is showing up and being like, mm, 30K for you, like that's, it can fuck with you, right? And conversely, I mean, it's, there's, there are people on the opposite side of that where, you know, they do one thing and suddenly millions of dollars get dumped on them and they start wondering, why me? Why do I deserve this? Like they have it, intense imposter syndrome, right? Like, did I get lucky? Like, am I, is this okay? Uh, so I think it's money is, is it's the easiest proxy of, of status and self-worth that we have, and it's, but it's not really accurate. And it's, um, but it, it's hard to like remind ourselves of that sometimes. Mm-hmm. If we shouldn't derive all of our self-worth from money and the amount of money we make or we have, where do you think we should be deriving our self-worth from? I think it's, Two things, you know. One, this comes. It's funny because we're, we're just going to keep coming back to the same two, three things, right? That drives eighty percent of happiness. Reel it into their yeah. heads. <laughs> but it's get good at something, develop a skill set, you know, become excellent. Whether it, and it doesn't matter, like whether it's coding or plumbing or digital art, you know, writing, marketing emails, whatever it is, pick something, get excellent at it. That process of working towards excellence builds a sense of self-esteem and self-worth. And you will, as you get better at that, you will see that worth reflected in how the market values you. And so that's where a little bit of that connection between money and self-worth comes. It, but it shouldn't be about the money. It should be about getting excellent at something. Just because you love it, you care about it, it's important to you. The second thing is, is, is have good relationships. You know, it's when you have, when there are people that you deeply care about and you see that they deeply care about you, it reminds you, I'm a worthy person, I'm a valuable person, people care about me, I matter in people's lives. And it's just, it's a fundamental human need. So again, it's like you nail those things, you know, develop a skill set that's valuable and that you care about, develop relationships that you value, care about, don't treat your body like shit. Most of the rest of the stuff takes care of itself. The happiness takes care of itself, the money takes care of itself, the feeling loved takes care of itself. 
Like you don't have to chase those things directly. Do you think you mentioned before imposter syndrome? Does imposter syndrome get solved with those same things? I think so because I think it's imposter syndrome is first of all I have a very like contrarian take on imposter syndrome which is I think it's healthy. I think if you made a bunch of money very quickly you should have imposter syndrome. You should be asking yourself, do I deserve this? Did I work hard enough for this? Because that is the opposite of taking it for granted and being arrogant. It's the opposite of mm. arrogance, right? It's not fun to feel that and I definitely went through some imposter syndrome after subtle art but it's not fun to feel it, but ultimately it keeps you humble. It keeps you a little bit hungry. Like, okay, I feel like I should I should do something again. So like kind of show that this was this wasn't a fluke. And it keeps you grounded. Like it it reminds you of like, hey, you know, you're not necessarily better or worse than, you know, your buddies that you hung out with last year, you know, who are still making the same amount of money they did before. So I think a little bit of imposter syndrome is is actually healthy. And as long as it's like not debilitating you. But yeah, I mean, it's look like at the end of the day, any sort of self worth issue, it comes back to the same thing. Are you doing good work? Are you surrounded by good people? And are you treating yourself well? And, um, you know, if you can say yes more often than no to all three of those questions, like you're eventually you're going to be in a good spot. Yeah. What was it about the success of the your best letter subtle art that gave you that imposter syndrome? And then how did you get over it? It's so funny. I almost think, I think it's just the velocity of it. My career, so my my career in in blogging and social media, it was very incremental. It was like every year was ten to twenty percent better than the year before, and by almost every metric. And then 20, 2013, 2014, there was a pretty big jump. You know, maybe a hundred percent better or whatever. And then right after that, subtle art came out, and it just like the money started showing up. And I think those three or four years where everything ten x. I think it's just the magnitude of that jump, like it disorients it disorients you. Um, you 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 like when everything's ten percent a year, you're like, yeah, this year's a little bit better than last year, and I worked hard, so I deserve this. Like, there's no like ambiguity or like uncertainty or anxiety about it. When one year is ten x better than the year before, you're like, what the fuck did I do? Like, <laughs> how did this happen? I didn't work that hard, you know. Especially when you like for me, where it's I worked really, really hard for eight years leading up to that. And then at 10Xs, and I'm like, well, I didn't work any harder last year than I did the first eight. So like, where the hell did this come from? And so I, I just think our brains are very bad at handling you know, curves that steep. And in terms of like how I got over it, honestly, I think I just needed a few years for, real, like, <laughs> for my brain to catch up to reality. I think it helped to do some a few projects afterwards that that went really well. You know, I had another number one New York Times bestseller a few years later. I did Will Smith's book, which was a number one New York Times bestseller. Just did a movie. Like once you see like boom, boom, boom. Okay, all this stuff is doing well. Okay, it's not a fluke. This is I built the skill set. It's the skill set. It's not luck. It helps you, I guess, sleep better at night. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting because I think as I. I spend a lot of time thinking about money and that connection with psychology and why people are happy or unhappy about money. It is like the disconnect between expectations and reality that causes a lot of the unhappiness. And so, you know, if you're at work and your expectation is that you should be getting a 20% raise, and then the reality is that you do not, you feel underappreciated. And there's that, it's always that gap. And the, I think the larger the gap is, the more it kind of throws you off. And for yes. you, your expectation was that 
you're going to increase by 10% a year that growth. The reality was that you went like, you know, yeah. it increased exponentially. And so even that caused some kind of disconnect, right? It caused the gap. And it's, it's funny too, I, I actually asked Will Smith about this and he told me, he said Quincy Jones, the famous music producer, used to call this altitude sickness because he said that throughout the 70s and 80s, you know, Quincy produced a, a ton of huge musical like pop stars and stuff. And he said that if they got too famous too fast, it's like going climbing a mountain too fast. Like you, you, you get altitude sickness and you, you can die, pass out, and fall back down the mountain. And so he started calling it that because it's like you have to, the same way to climb a mountain effectively, you need to stop and acclimate every couple miles or whatever. You need to do that. It, it's almost like the brain needs that with, with success and money too. Like you can't just go from 100K a year to 10 million a year. Like it just, it scrambles you. I mean, it's like lottery winners, right? Like that's it, exactly it, what I was thinking. Yeah, about. like it's it's. There's a reason why most of them go broke, and it's it's like they got a helicopter ride to the peak of the mountain, uh, and they never learned the climb, and they never learned to you know any of the skills or how to deal with the setbacks or the stress. The one thing that we haven't really talked about is the third question that you've brought up about treating your body well. Are you treating your body well? Yeah. What have you learned about that that we should take away? This is definitely the area that, so I spent most of my adult life up until a year ago, like hyper-focused on the first two questions. I guess first the relationship question and then the career pursuit question. The physical health thing is something that I, and it's so funny because I, th- I feel like maybe it's more obvious to other people, but like I didn't really start thinking about my physical health until about a year ago. And I, not only did I not think about it, but I, I really had bad lifestyle habits. Like I was a big partier in my 20s and early 30s. I lived in New York, so a lot of nights out, a lot of not, fine restaurants, you know, a lot of bottles of wine. I traveled constantly for work. I was like never sleeping well. So yeah, I got really unhealthy in my mid-30s to the point that, you know, I started having health scares and things started showing up in blood work and stuff that doctors were like, uh, dude, <laughs> you mm. should maybe uh, <laughs> cut back on the wine. Um, so when I moved to LA, I, I really, I, well, it was really during the pandemic I started focusing on it. But then when I moved to LA last year, I, I was like, okay, I'm going to make this top priority for like the next two years, basically. Basically get myself to like the healthiest I've ever been and then, and then try to maintain that going forward. And um and I feel like such an idiot. Like I've been writing about these topics for so long and I've been studying this stuff for so long. And as soon as I quit drinking, started exercising somewhat regularly and spent more time outside, like slept better, like everything in my life got like 20% better. <laughs> like my energy got 20% better. My work got 20% better. I was in a better mood all the time. My I was happier hanging out with friends. And I just, I kind of had this moment maybe six months ago where I'm like, wow, I'm such an idiot. Like I just, <laughs> I know it's obvious. Like this, this is, it's like a cliche how obvious it is. But I'm like, man, I've been like, I've been writing and researching about well-being and happiness and emotional health for so many years, like over a decade. And like the most obvious thing, you know, the the, the biggest, one of the biggest levers you can pull on was in front of me the entire time and I've ignored it. Mm. Uh, so it's, I can't really overstate it, especially, you know, once you get over, over 30 or over 40, like it, it's, it's impossible to overstate how important it is to like develop those habits 
and maintain them. So the health thing is so important. I feel like I too have just now started to realize how important it is. And I'm trying to do the hikes. I'm trying to be a little better for my body. I imagine as a self-help expert, there's a lot of pressure on you to have everything in your life figured out. And you almost have to, (laughs) you almost with your profession have to give that facade almost. Is there anything that you feel like you really have not yet figured out? Well, first of all, I, I try to nip that in the bud in all my work, I'm like very, there's a reason if you read my books, it's all the stories I share are my biggest mistakes, pains, tragedies, fuck ups, because it's, I realized very early on that if I start taking on that expectation of like, I'm supposed to have this all figured out, not only am I going to disappoint people, but I'm going to drive myself insane because I'm not going to allow myself to be a, a messy, fallible human which I am. So I actually, I I take the alternate tack, which is I I make a point to be extra open about all the dumb stuff I do. (laughs) And um, which is why I've been talking about this health thing quite a bit. You know, it's, this has been the biggest weakness slash failure of mine, I would say, over like the last five or six years. I'd say the other thing that I've struggled a lot with or struggled with recently, I mean, we talked about the imposter syndrome, but there was kind of a phase after that where they're like, I just got inundated with all these opportunities and everything was so new and shiny and sexy that I, I just started saying yes to everything. And I mean, as, as, as we both know, like that, that gets you in the trouble is when you stop saying no to stuff, like you, you're just giving yourself away all the time. So I, and it's funny too, because that's an issue that I thought I solved in early in my career, like I did solve that early in my career. What I didn't account for is that when you jump up the mountain really quickly, there's a whole new set of opportunities that are very tempting to say yes to that you have to learn to say no. It's like each level you go up, you got to learn how to say no again. And I didn't realize that at the time. And so that's been another big lesson that it's, it's, there's like layers to this stuff. That's so relatable. I think I'm always scared of saying no to the wrong things, like yeah. things that I should have said yes to. Yeah. But you have to because otherwise, I think when you reach a certain level, everyone wants to just take, 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 take yeah. from you. And if you allow them to by saying yes to everything, then soon there's very little left. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And it's it's your ultimately your your time and energy are your the only real resources you have. Everything else is is just a an exchange of your time and energy. And I think the other thing that is hard is that you reach certain points, like once you've built up your career to a certain point, you start running into situations where an opportunity that the 25-year-old you would dream about, would fantasize about, is actually something you should say no to now. And that messes with your head too. And yeah, so there was, there was a lot of struggle with that over the past couple of years and then, and then the health thing. But it, it's so funny too, and this is a little bit of a tangent, but like moving to LA like really helped with both of those things. I think there's, we underestimate the, the power of our context or environment. And there's something about starting over in a new physical location that kind of forces you to assess all the other things in your life and say like, do I want to keep doing that? Yes or no? Hmm, actually no. And yeah. So there were a lot of surprises that way too. I My dad was in the military growing up, so I moved around every three years. And now if I live in somewhere longer than three years, I just get this itch to move. And I, <laughs> I think I like it because it's just a new start and yeah. you get to 
form new relationships. And it's also out of your comfort zone. I don't like the feeling of being too comfortable anywhere. Yeah. I've been living this very transient life. So it's just like, I love the feeling of being somewhere new and plopped in and you have no friends and you have to go make friends and you have to, yeah. you have to like establish connections there. I really like that. Yeah. I see why LA was good for you. <laughs> <laughs> if you were to write a letter to your 18-year-old self now, what would you write in it? The harder question is, is there anything I could say that my 18-year-old self would actually listen to? <laughs> this, this question is always so hard because, you know, ultimately it's like, and I hate it when people give this answer too, but I'm, I'm going to start with this answer, which is it's, it's hard because so many of the failures and mistakes, even though they hurt, like they brought me here. So it's hard, it's hard to warn too much against certain things. I guess... What I would say to my 18-year-old self is I was very socially anxious when I was in my, as a teenager and I would tell him that people are not paying attention to you nearly as much as you think they are. It, it doesn't matter. Um, and I'd probably tell him to, to trust himself a little bit more. I definitely struggled with a lot of self-esteem issues when I was younger and, and I think I underestimated myself for a long time. I actually think it's funny, like you, you said when you started, like you set this extremely ambitious goal publicly. Like that is something I never would have done when I started out. Like I, I have a history of under, like expecting too little of myself. Mm. You know, I, I, I probably should have been expecting more. When I started blogging and I started getting an audience, I probably should have set more ambitious goals than I did. <laughs> My goal was just like, go live in Thailand for six months. You know, like I was like, <laughs> sweet, I did it. Whereas if I, I think if I had been aiming higher, I maybe I could have done done a lot more quicker, um, but yeah, I'd say people people aren't paying attention to you as much as you think they are, and and shoot higher than you think you can. I think that's really good. I also realized what you were saying with advice is so true. It doesn't really matter. I've had so many people give me advice in my life that looking back was really good advice that I wish I would have applied, but it was just the wrong timing. Wrong time. I wasn't ready to accept that. And I imagine in the self-help world too, it's not just about picking up your books. It's about picking them up at the right time where it would be applicable to your life in a very actionable way. Yeah. You know? I, I see it as, this is another thing I learned very early in my career because I would get frustrated. I'm like, I'm telling this guy all the things he needs to do and he's not doing them or he's not getting it. And what I realized as some years went on is, is stuff like that started happening. You know, like there would be a, a client that I had two years before that it was like banging my head against the wall. And then two years later, I get an email and he was like, hey man, you were right about everything. Like it just, it took me a year to like digest it and then go do it. And so now I, I really think about it of like what I do. It's, I'm not trying to get people to like change anything. It's more, it's like, I'm just like throwing out seeds and a lot of those seeds aren't going to find fertile ground, but a lot of them will. And some of them will sprout very quickly and some of them will sprout a year, two years, five years, 10 years from now. And that's fine too. It's actually kind of none of my business like how, how or when my advice is taken. It's like, it's just my job just to throw the seeds out. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. So we have a little closing tradition. The podcast is called Erica Taught Me, but really today is all about Mark Taught Me. So what do you want people to be able to walk away from the podcast saying, Mark taught me this? <laughs> I guess the three questions drive most of your results in anything, you know, what people are you around, what skill or goal are you pursuing and how are you treating yourself? Don't overcomplicate things. Happiness is overrated. Money's not going to solve your problems. Relationships are hard, so get good at them. 
else? That's kind of, did we cover anything else? That's most of it. That's really good. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. This was Uh, amazing. Thanks, Erica. If you've enjoyed the episode, please take a moment to leave a review. It really helps support what we're doing. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next Tuesday on a brand new episode of Erica Taught Me.